From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Scientists have found older women living in cities that meet federal standards for particulate air pollution may run nearly twice the risk of dying from a heart attack than those living in cleaner cities. It suggests that the standard itself is not strictly protective of everybody in terms of uh, exposure. Also, you expect birds, bats, and insects to fly, and maybe even the odd squirrel, but how about frogs, lizards, and even snakes? It's all part of the amazing diversity of the Asian island of Borneo. The island itself holds an unbelievable amount of unique animals and plants. The more famous ones, such as the orangutans, pygmy elephants, rhinoceros, the gibbons, and other monkeys, the proboscis monkey, lizards and snakes galore. Protecting biodiversity on Borneo and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. You may instinctively cover your nose and hold your breath when a diesel motor belches a black cloud in your direction, but it turns out that it's what you can't see that's most harmful. Scientists have known for years that it's the tiniest invisible particles in soot and exhaust that can cause the most harm. In the 1990s, Harvard researchers calculated that as many as 70,000 Americans die prematurely every year from tiny particle pollution, mostly from diesel engines and coal-fired power plants. And now the New England Journal of Medicine has published a study out of the University of Washington of 66,000 postmenopausal women that indicates the death rate may be even higher. In some of America's cities with the dirtiest air, such as Pittsburgh, Cincinnati, and the Los Angeles Basin, this latest study indicates the risk of death from cardiovascular disease for those women is close to that of active smokers. Dr. C. Arden Pope is an epidemiologist and an economist at Brigham Young University in Utah who studies particulate pollution. Dr. Pope, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Well, perhaps we should start with a little lesson on particulate size. Why does size matter when we're talking about particulate air pollution, especially in relation to this study? Well, there's two reasons that size matters. First is, is that the coarse particles, particles that are relatively large, are often naturally occurring. They come from wind-blown dust and other natural sources. These particles do not seem to be especially toxic. That's because chemically they're different. It's also because they're of a size that do not penetrate deeply into the lungs. Fine particles, particles less than two and a half micrometers in diameter, are much more serious. And the reason is, is they're chemically more toxic. They come primarily from combustion processes. Furthermore, their size is such that they can be breathed deeply into the lungs and therefore cause more problems. What is new about this study on the effects of particulates when it comes to heart health, cardiovascular health? What's new about this study is, is two things. One is it focuses primarily on women, postmenopausal women. And two, it observes effects that are substantially larger than have been observed in previous studies. There have been two other studies that have looked at cardiovascular death uh, in both men and women, uh, the Harvard Six Cities study and the American Cancer Society study. And both of these studies did observe that cardiovascular death, or at least the risk of cardiovascular death, was increased with long-term exposure to fine particle pollution. This study focused on women, not only observes that uh, the risk of cardiovascular death is increased with exposure, 
but that increased risk is substantially higher than what was observed in the previous studies. The difference is roughly two to three times higher than what we had estimated earlier. Can you break that down for me? Basically, what they did is they followed up uh, postmenopausal women that did not have cardiovascular disease. And then over a period of approximately six years, they looked at which women developed cardiovascular disease and which women died of cardiovascular disease. What they learned is is that individuals exposed to 10 micrograms per cubic meter of PM2.5 had a 24% increased risk of having cardiovascular events and a 76% increased risk of dying from cardiovascular disease. Interestingly enough, they also looked at cerebral vascular events. Strokes, you mean? Basically strokes, basically ischemic strokes. But uh, it, was, it was amazing that even ischemic strokes or these cerebral vascular events were associated with increased levels of PM2.5. And in fact, for every 10 microgram per cubic meter increase in PM2.5, there was about a 35% increase in the risk of these cerebral vascular events or primarily strokes. Now, the current EPA limit for fine particles in the air on a long-term basis, I believe, is 15 micrograms per cubic meter. What does this study say to you about that limit? Well, this study, as well as numerous other studies, seem to suggest that the exposure-response relationship between air pollution and cardiovascular and respiratory disease is near linear. That is to say that there is no clear threshold where exposure to air pollution is strictly safe. And so that is a bit troubling on the one hand because it suggests that even uh, air pollution below 15 micrograms per cubic meter can have impacts on our health. It's good news also in the sense, though, that it also suggests that if we make efforts to improve our air quality, even at levels below 15 micrograms per cubic meter, we will get improvements in health. So it suggests that the standard itself is not strictly protective of everybody in terms of uh, exposure. Dr. Pope, thank you so much. You're welcome. Dr. C. Arden Pope is an epidemiologist and economist at Brigham Young University in Utah. He spoke to us about the Women's Health Initiative study on fine particulates published in the recent issue of the New England Journal of Medicine. The issue also includes editorial comments from Dr. Douglas Dockery at the Harvard School of Public Health, who was one of the authors of the original Harvard Six Cities study. To get more details and hear an interview with Dr. Dockery, go to our website, LOE.org. The regulation of fine particulates continues to bedevil the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. Other air pollutants have decreased in recent years, but EPA records show that tiny particle pollution has gotten worse. And last year, EPA Administrator Stephen Johnson touched off a controversy when he ignored his own science advisors on particulates. They had recommended a stricter health standard, tighter than the 15 micrograms per cubic meter that Dr. Pope just spoke about. Now the EPA is under fire for changing the process those scientists use and cutting the budget for measuring tiny particulates. Living on Earth's Jeff Young reports from Capitol Hill. Near the center of Washington, D.C., sits a white trailer with a roof full of whirring metal machines, keeping constant vigil on the Capitol's air. Bill Becker's biggest interest here is the machine that measures the tiniest particles. The soot that is less than two and a half microns Um, which is a fraction of the diameter of a piece of hair. I mean, it's very, very small. Becker is with the National Association of Clean Air Agencies. He says monitors like this one alert people with breathing problems when the air is bad. 
and the monitors tell air officials when they need to do more to control fine particles. This is the foundation of every agency's regulatory program. So without that data, agencies are at a loss for notifying the public and knowing whether or not the air is clean or not. Becker says the Environmental Protection Agency's budget would cut funds for these monitors around the country by $17 million, a 40 percent hit. Clean air advocates say the budget cuts are the latest in a string of troubling EPA decisions when it comes to fine particles, from not paying for the machines that gather raw data to not paying attention to the agency's top science panel. EPA's Clean Air Science Advisors, a group known as CASAC, studied the mounting evidence linking fine particles to cardiovascular disease and premature deaths. The advisors recommended a stricter standard for fine particles last year, but EPA Administrator Stephen Johnson rejected their recommendation. Then he changed the CASAC advisory process in a way that critics say limits the input of scientists. Now the new chair of the U.S. Senate's Environment Committee is taking Johnson to task. EPA's actions make it clear who EPA is protecting. And sadly, it is not the American people. California Democrat Barbara Boxer called Johnson before her committee to explain what she called rollbacks in environmental protection that favor polluters. Johnson sat blinking in the witness chair like a man bracing for a blow. And true to her name, Boxer delivered. Her haymaker punch came with this description of Johnson's changes to the agency's scientific process. Instead of basing health standards on the best science, they will now inject politics into the entire decision. Under EPA's plan, key scientists will no longer work directly with top government officials to help set health standards. You took the science out of the clean air rule and stuck it at the end of the process. Nobody's fooled by this. Here's the point. These rollbacks were done in the dead of night, and it's over in terms of you're not having to come before the committees of Congress to respond to them. Johnson is the first career scientist to lead EPA, and he seemed stung as he hurried from the hearing room. Reporters caught him waiting for an elevator where he defended his changes to clean air science. Johnson says the science advisors simply take too long. There's something wrong with the process, and that's why I asked our deputy to initiate a top-down look at the entire program. The science advisors of CASAC are supposed to update findings on major pollutants every five years. But Johnson says their cumbersome process means they rarely meet that deadline. He says his changes will allow the committee to work quickly while still considering a full range of views. And by the process that we've laid out, it very clearly defines where the science input is and where the policy input is. And I think that this is much improved. Uh, We'll have even better and greater science influence, at the same time being able to draw a very clear distinction between what is science and what is policy. But many of the KSAC scientists disagree. The same morning Johnson squirmed in Boxer's hot seat, the science advisors met to voice strong opposition to Johnson's changes. University of California medical professor John Balmas is a KSAC member. Balmas agrees the process should be streamlined, but he says Johnson went too far when he eliminated the step that lets scientists and EPA workers compile the most important science in a staff paper. The staff paper or some other document that would be its equivalent is vitally important. And I believe that 
all of the KSEC members agree with me on that. Balmas says the changes make EPA's political appointees more powerful and reduce science advisors to the same level as lobbying groups making comment. And Balmas says Johnson's real motivation goes back to the disagreement over fine particles. The science advisors openly criticized Johnson for being the first EPA administrator to ignore their recommendations. The conflict between the what the administrator wanted to do in terms of policy and what the science shows uh, was embarrassing to the administration. So if you get embarrassment, just get rid of the staff paper. Then you won't have to worry about embarrassment. Some of the advisors say they are sending Johnson a letter protesting his changes to the science process. And until the issue is settled, it's not clear how great a role science will play in setting EPA's health standards. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young in Washington. Coming up, it's Indonesia's version of New Orleans after Katrina, only this time it's millions of people who've been flooded out by monsoon rains in the capital, Jakarta. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Life can be challenging in Indonesia. The tsunami of 2004 killed 160,000 people. The bird flu has claimed its most human victims so far in this island nation. And now, for the third time in a decade, torrential rains have caused catastrophic flooding in its capital, Jakarta. It's only the start of the monsoon season, and the 12 million or so people who live along the city's 13 rivers are bracing for even more rain. On the line with me now from Jakarta is Stephen Fitzpatrick. He's a correspondent for the newspaper The Australian. Hi there. Hi there. How are you? So tell me, uh, just how bad has it been this monsoon season there in Jakarta? Well, since the night of February 1, when a bunch of rivers broke their banks, up to anything up to 70% of Jakarta has been flooded and pretty much made uninhabitable. So um, people, even in the last couple of days, as the situation has eased a little bit, might have, uh, for instance, left their flooded area, gone back as the waters recede, and then discover that they're suddenly flooded again and have to leave. So it's been difficult for the city. Monsoon is very much a part of of life and culture in Indonesia. Uh, Every year they're expected. What makes this particular monsoon season so much worse than previous rainy seasons? Yes, well, very good question. And if you listen to the governor of Jakarta answer it, we just all should have known that it would come and, you know, we could have done nothing about it. He says, well, it was just a lot more rain than we expected and what am I supposed to do? Of course, the criticism that's directed back at him in response to that is that planning or unplanned development in the city has been allowed to go on at a furious pace and that that has swallowed up areas that were previously effectively water runoff areas. Um, The mountainous area to the south has been subject to some fairly severe deforestation. It's a city that's outstripped its ability to cope with natural occurrences like the annual monsoon season. And in fact, perhaps predictably, uh, you get the debate at a moment like this about about what to do about it. And and a lot of that debate, I, I 
might suggest will be forgotten in the coming weeks. But one of Bo's conversations from really from the top, from City Hall down at the moment, is this ongoing one about should we move the capital somewhere south because the land area we've got here just isn't big enough to cope with you know, the functions of running a central government as well as the commercial functions. Tell me about the infrastructure there. Now, Indonesia was for a long time a Dutch colony. Of course, much of the Netherlands is underwater. The Dutch are pretty good at building dikes and waterways and canals. What does Jakarta have? Yeah, well, it has dikes and waterways and canals built by the Dutch. <laughs> Unfortunately, they haven't really been uh, improved since the Dutch built them about 200 years ago, and that's one of the basic problems. A uh, goodly part of Jakarta City is actually below sea level, which is one of the major problems. There's currently a project to build a major east-west canal, a new canal that would be able to distribute major flooding waters, but that's bolted down in politics and you know land acquisition issues, and that could be several years away if it's ever finished. Now, I'm looking at an editorial from the Jakarta Post, and the title is, Oops, We All Did It Again. Uh, have people come to expect this sort of disaster in Indonesia? Yes, they have. Well, certainly in Jakarta, but across the whole country. I mean, obviously this is quite a spectacular event over the past week and a bit in the capital, but every wet season there are landslips and rivers breaking their banks and people dying as a result of all of that right across the country. And, you know, there tends to be a little bit of a shoulder shrug about it all and, you know, a quick um, send in some some rescue teams and people with rubber boats and, and, you know, whatever can be assembled to deal with those situations. Now, I'm told that perhaps the... uh Kesara attitude about this might be linked to the fact that most of the people affected by this are very poor? In general, most people, most people affected by natural disaster in Indonesia tend to be. Um, that's been one of the interesting things of the current disaster in Jakarta is pretty much everyone has been affected and pretty much all areas of the city have been flooded. So slum areas along riverbanks get flooded every year, regular as clockwork. You can you can speak to people who live in these slum areas and who say, you know, I, I grew up here, my, my mother grew up here and the floods have come every year and, and we just get on the roof when the floods come and we go back down and clean out the house when they go. And, and there's an expectation that that's just how life is. What concerns about climate change have entered into the debate and discussion about this monsoon disaster? Uh, I would have to say none, and for probably a range of reasons. The level of debate about environmental issues generally in Indonesia is tends not to be a very uh, far-reaching one, and there's a lot of reasons for that. One of them is that many issues, development in Indonesia tends not to have long-term concerns and often tends to have fairly short-term and quick profit-based concerns. So what are the health implications of a disaster of this scale? I mean, the, the water can't be all that clean that's been flooding the city. No, the water is filthy. And it's not just the water that's flooding the streets, but t- town water generally in Jakarta is, is not fit for consumption in general. And there's a very a huge bottled water industry. But uh, often in homes, people will use groundwater, well water, now, that well water has all been polluted by the floods, so it's become unusable. There is serious fears of 
gastrointestinal diseases, skin infection type diseases. The other significant health risk uh, which Indonesia is, and Jakarta especially has been battling in recent months is dengue fever. Uh, the number of dead from dengue before these floods was in the dozens and that possibly is only going to increase with the ability for the dengue carrying mosquito to, to breed in all this water. So um, with all the stress on the public health uh, system there in, uh, in Jakarta and in, in Indonesia, Indonesia is also the epicenter right now of the avian flu outbreak. Now, there are not many people that have it yet, but what concerns are there that with all the chaos that's going on, uh, something could happen to a bird flu there? There's no suggestion that there will be any increase in infections directly as a result of the floods, other than the general general health problems that you know people are more likely to get sick when they're stressed and already not very healthy. So um, I guess that's entirely likely. I think more specifically on the bird flu issue, there's a, at the moment a general sense of wait and hold your breath because there's every chance that it will explode. And although Indonesia currently leads the world, or unfortunately leads the world in the number of deaths directly attributed to bird flu, it so far remains in check. But there's a very real concern that that situation could change and could change very quickly. So how were you affected by this flooding? Personally? Yes. Well, I was, I was very fortunate in that I live in, uh, right in the inner city, uh, very close to my office, which was a very deliberate choice because in general you can't get around Jakarta during peak hour traffic times at all, so it makes sense to, to live close to where you work if at all possible. And I was just very lucky that my little section of Jakarta doesn't seem to have flooded. I mean, I live only 100 metres from one of the 13 rivers and I can look across to the other side where I can see the Four Seasons Hotel, which has been flooded on the, on the other side of my river. So I really was just very lucky. Stephen Fitzpatrick is the Jakarta correspondent for The Australian. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Later in the program, we'll travel across the Malay archipelago to the island of Borneo. Three nations, including Indonesia, share this hotspot of biological diversity. And now there's a major agreement to preserve the wild heart of the island from development. Back here in the U.S., the bugling of wild elk is part of what makes the Mountain West so special. It reassures many that the West still has room for at least some of nature's most majestic and untamed creatures. But some of the elk are now caught behind fences. There are 78 elk ranches and hunting preserves in the state of Idaho alone. And in the summer of 2006... When a large number of farm-raised elk escaped from a ranch in eastern Idaho, it sparked concerns about the mixing of domestic herds with the wild. Critics of the ranches fear the domestic elk could spread disease and alter the wild gene pool. And some of them want Idaho to ban private elk preserves. Producer Guy Han picks up the story in Boise, Idaho. When talk began of outlawing private elk ranches in Idaho last fall, Randy King, executive chef at Crane Creek Country Club in Boise, put together a news conference to show that he and many other chefs support the young industry. Restaurants can't serve wild game, so without domestic elk, King says he wouldn't be able to serve one of the region's most popular foods. 
I don't think I've talked to a single chef yet that wants to limit the amount of food that we can provide to our customers. So I, I have not yet spoken to a chef that wanted to say, you know, ban elk ranching in the state. Not a single one. Nearly every northwestern state, except Idaho, has banned or severely limited the raising of domestic elk. That's why, in my opinion, it's so important for Idaho to keep elk ranching, because we are providing a resource. Black Canyon Elk Ranch in particular, the one that I'm really here to support, provides um, elk to eight different states. You know, they personally go down to Wyoming and to Jackson Hole, over to Oregon, into Montana. Christy and Roy Stearns own Black Canyon Elk Ranch. On a snowy afternoon in December, Christy Stearns helps an agricultural inspector count and catalog their elk herd near Emmett. Well, we're working the elk. We're doing a part of our annual inventory and inspection by the Idaho Department of Ag. It's where we verify all of our elk to make sure who's here and their ID tags, make sure everything's properly ID'd, has got their color tags and their metal tags. We do it once a year. Many of the elk that escaped from a ranch in eastern Idaho last summer didn't have those mandatory visible ID tags. That made them much harder to find. And because the owner recaptured many of the animals before authorities could count them, no one knows how many escaped. About 20 are still unaccounted for, according to the Idaho Department of Agriculture. Yet Christy Stearns believes the domestic elk industry in Idaho is well regulated. Elk are tested for chronic wasting disease, which is the equivalent of mad cow in cattle. And every cow is not even tested for mad cow in the United States upon slaughter. Every elk, however, is. 100% of our elk have to be tested for chronic wasting disease. And there's never been a positive one in any of our Idaho herds. Domestic elk are also tested for brucellosis and tuberculosis. But given all this testing, I asked Christy why they bother to raise elk. They're just majestic animals. They're different from the average livestock, and it's like having an animal planted out on your own farm. So, But it's that mingling of the wild and domestic, the natural and the farmed, that worries those that oppose elk ranching. Yes, game farms are people's livelihoods, but their livelihoods do not touch what Idaho stands to lose if chronic wasting disease wipes out our herds. Sherry Barton is with the Idaho Wildlife Federation, one of dozens of organizations that believe that last summer's elk ranch escape was not an anomaly. Besides that escape, 221 domestic elk have broken out of elk ranches in Idaho over the last 10 years. And Barton fears all those escapees could not only threaten wild herds with diseases like chronic wasting, but also with unnatural genetic traits that ranchers breed into domestic elk, like massive antlers. If you like to hike and you like to see the animals in the wild or you backpack or you raft or you use the rivers, canoeing, anything that you're out in the wilds and you like to see wild game, you need to help with this issue. Many Idaho hunters agree. It's a bitter cold, cloudless day in January, and on the steps of the state capitol building, Mark Bell of the Idaho Sportsman's Caucus is addressing a couple of hundred camel-wearing hunters. Idaho is one of the most world-recognized hunting destinations. We have to protect that. The caucus represents about 30 hunting groups, and they too think domestic elk could threaten the region's wild herds. Mark Bell. If you've ever seen an animal with chronic wasting disease, it's almost pathetic. 
They uh, jump up and down. They have no sense of control. They fall, they spit and drool, and pretty soon they just die. It, It is tragic. The fact is, chronic wasting disease already exists in wild elk as close by as Wyoming, so transmission could go either way. Critics acknowledge this, but they think that elk ranches could speed up the spread of the disease. Yet, many say the emotional fuel driving this whole debate isn't just the fear of disease or genetic impurity, but a profound distaste for fenced-in elk hunting preserves, what some call canned hunts or even snuff farms. Although most of the 78 elk farms in Idaho raise elk only for meat, much like cattle ranches raise cattle for beef, there are about 15 operations offering elk for sport hunting. Hunters can pay more than $10,000 to shoot an elk on one of these confined preserves. Mark Bell says the operations simply aren't compatible with the ethic hunters call fair chase. And as ethical hunters... The challenge for you and I to go out and harvest an animal in their environment, that's the challenge. I really don't see much of a challenge inside of a fenced compound. That's not hunting and uh, shouldn't be referred to as hunting. It's killing. But Ted Ray, an elk breeder speaking at that November news conference, argues that confined hunts have benefits. By offering an alternative to our wild herds, we actually create an abundance for everybody. That abundance is created by lessening the demand and impact on our wild resources, on our public resources. Some, like Ray, say that the reintroduction of wolves plus poor public land management has caused wild elk numbers to drop. Ray believes private hunting preserves are a logical alternative, and elk ranching a new kind of agriculture. It's not just left up to nature and whether or not that animal's able to escape a wolf, but that it is allowed to blossom and be fruitful. Ray likens breeding domestic elk to gardening. I think of it oftentimes as finding a wildflower and picking that wildflower and bringing it home and putting it in a pot. You take those seeds and you harvest those seeds and you plant them in your garden, and you raise those, and you raise them again, and then someday you plant those again in the wild. It's going full circle. It's precisely that going full circle, the intentional or accidental release of highly bred domestic elk into the wild, that opponents of elk ranches and hunting preserves fear most. Idaho State Senator David Langhorst, speaking on the Capitol steps, hopes new legislation will plug up what he sees as a too porous border between domestic and wild elk. There's wide agreement in the legislature, if not to ban game farms, at least, that we need some kind of licensing with teeth so that bad actors can be uh, uh, put out of business if they need to be. So to me, if we can ban canned hunts uh, and minimize the risks at the other farms, I think that that would, would go a long way to fixing the problem. Now, uh, that's just me. There are many members of the public that I hear from that want the entire practice banned. So what are you putting in there now? A little thyme, a little rosemary. Kind of give it the rustic feel. Chef Randy King hovers over a domestic elk chop he sautéed in his Crane Creek Country Club kitchen. People come here for the wild experience, for the elk, for the, for the game. So to not be able to put that on the menu, yeah, that's ridiculous in my opinion. 
basically any animal that we had that's domesticated was once a wild animal. What about the pheasants? What about the farm-raised buffalo? What about the farm-raised trout? What about the farm-raised sturgeon? What about the farm-raised alligators? Farm-raised ostriches? All those things are wild animals that nobody seems to think twice about, you know, as soon as you got an elk behind a pen, you know, it's a big majestic animal. I can understand the concern, but it doesn't, you know, where's the line? Where do you get the happy medium at? So where do you draw the line between nature and agriculture? It's a question societies have asked since the first cultivated field, the first tamed animal. Now it's the Idaho legislature's turn. And if it doesn't draw a hard line between the farm and the forest, Elk ranching opponents in Idaho say they'll introduce a citizen's initiative that will. For Living on Earth, I'm Guy Hand in Boise. Hey Chris, can you bring me those morales? Coming up, a journey across northern Wisconsin by dog sled. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from you, our listeners, and from member stations. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwin. Across the Java Sea from flood-ravaged Jakarta lies the island of Borneo. It's home to some of the most diverse ecosystems in the world. In the last year alone, more than 50 new plant and animal species have been discovered in the Borneo rainforest. But much of that forest is falling to the chainsaw and the drive for agriculture. That's why the three countries that share the island, Indonesia, Malaysia, and Brunei, have just agreed to preserve as much as a third of Borneo from development. Adam Tomasek is the director of the Borneo and Sumatra program for the World Wildlife Fund. The island itself holds an an unbelievable amount of unique animals and plants. The more famous ones, such as the orangutans, pygmy elephants, rhinoceros, the gibbons and other monkeys, the proboscis monkey, lizards and snakes galore. I understand that there are the most flying animals in the world on Borneo, such things as snakes, squirrels the size of house cats, lizards, frogs, lemurs. How does a snake fly? Well, they all have a very unique um, adaptation that allows them to literally glide, uh, most of them just being long appendages of of skin that allow them to basically parachute down among the canopy of the trees. Many scientists now believe that the adaptations are such that these animals are able to glide as the most efficient way to move between large areas in the forest. Tell me about the monkey that the locals call the Dutchman. The Dutchman is also known as the proboscis monkey, and uh, they're, they're quite comical creatures. Um, the males have a very large uh, nose. I'm looking at a picture of one here. Not only do you get the big no- nose, but you get this pot belly. That's right. The male monkeys look like, well, a rather old man who's, you know, maybe had an awful lot of beer over his lifetime. <laughs> Local tale has it that that is exactly why it came to be known as the Dutchman. But the scientific reason it has such a big belly is... More has to do with its adaptation to the food that it eats. They eat a lot of leaves and some fruit. The actual physical adaptation is such that it has a stomach similar to that of a of a ruminant or, a, or I guess a cow that we would be familiar with here, where there are different chambers in the stomach that allow it to digest the, the high cellulose content of a lot of leaves. I understand that scientists have found more than 50 new species of plants and animals on Borneo in just this last year alone. What kind of things are they finding? 
They're finding a whole host of, of really mesmerizing species, a combination of plants and animals. Some things that stick out really are um, a catfish that has an adaptation an organ actually that allows it to stick to rocks. So as it's sitting in, a, in very rapidly flowing rivers, um, it can literally stick itself to a rock and stay in one place. They also found what is considered the world's second smallest fish. And in addition, there are three new species of trees, um, 16 species of ginger, a whole host of things that literally just make us believe that there's still a lot more to be discovered and, and known about Borneo. Now, what's been the effect of development on the search for new creatures on Borneo? I understand it's quite threatened. The rainforest is disappearing rapidly. It is. Um, Unfortunately, it's a reality that we've seen played out elsewhere in Indonesia and in other parts of Southeast Asia. Development means two different things. It means one thing that the forest frontier is sort of retreating, which means that access is a lot easier to some of these once remote and far off forest valleys or mountaintops. Development also means that there is a world of attention, uh, financial attention, scientific attention, political and and economic attention that's being focused on the island itself as well. So we're looking quite carefully at the impacts of development, which really relates to the issues around uh, palm oil plantations. Palm oil itself is one of the largest drivers of forest loss and and forest conversion on Borneo, as well as other parts of Indonesia and Malaysia. Indonesia and Malaysia are the two countries that produce the most amount of palm oil in the world, supplying around 85% or so. And both governments in the past year have announced very aggressive expansion plans. What's the palm oil used for? Palm oil is, is a rather ubiquitous substance. It's found in a lot of the snacks that we consume on a daily basis, everything from uh, cookies and microwave popcorn to uh, candy bars. It's also used in different soaps and shampoos, and we've seen a major spike in the global demand for looking at palm oil as a major component of biofuels. It's quite useful in a lot of different products, which really means that it has a very large market demand. Now, I hear that as the forests are cleared for such projects as growing palm oil, that the orangutans have been especially displaced by all of this development. Well, orangutans are very sensitive to their habitats. They're the world's largest tree-dwelling animal. Um, They're the only one of the great apes that actually is, is more arboreal than it is terrestrial as you compare them to the gorillas in particular in Africa. Um, So they're extremely dependent on trees and healthy forest systems uh, for their food and forage and nesting habits. I understand that there's a three-government agreement to protect what you at the World Wildlife Fund call the heart of Borneo. Tell me about this agreement. The agreement is what we refer to as the Heart of Borneo Declaration, and it was officially launched by the governments of Brunei, Malaysia, and Indonesia just last month. It is analogous to what we've seen governments in the Amazon and the Congo Basin over the past few years launch. We're quite hopeful that this is the real first signs of how the three governments are willing to cooperate to supersede national priorities and and really look at the island as a single entity that they care deeply about, that they're committed to actually find solutions to the most pressing of problems. The area itself is still a bit of a shifting process. Currently, it's about the size of the state of Kansas, just a little over a third of the entire island of Borneo. It really is um, the heart and soul of the island. It's the interior reaches that fan out 
into the lowland rainforest and the peat swamps. It contains the largest remaining expanse of forest on the island. And also, it gives rise to 14 of the 20 major rivers that are found on the island. You know, what's the thing that really strikes you about this place? Perhaps a personal story. In the middle part of last year, we took a group of people from around the world out to experience Borneo, and we were in the Danum Valley. And as we woke up in the morning, I wandered off before breakfast to uh, have some alone time with all of the delightful sounds of the uh, forest. And I was sitting on um, on the riverbank, looking up as the gibbons were starting to do their morning calls, and the mist was rising up off the river. As I looked up, I started focusing with my binoculars on the forest on, on the slope on the other side. And within just a few meters from each other, you had an orangutan that was just sort of clamoring about in its nest that it had slept in at night. As I panned to the right a, a little ways over, you had a uh, troop of gibbons that were sitting there that were calling back and forth to each other. And then as I looked down, just a little bit down the tree, there were some macaques that were in there that were kind of shaking the tree all around and making a huge ruckus. And and I thought, you know, there are a few places in the world where you can actually sit and take in such a visually stimulating experience where you see so many different types of species that you can only see on this one given island. It's a memory that I still find to be one of the most important in my life. Adam Tomasek is the director of the Borneo Sumatra Program for the World Wildlife Fund. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you very much. Low-carb is a diet, right? Well, nowadays, low-carb doesn't just mean low-carbohydrate to slim down from the excesses of sugar and starch. It also means low-carbon to slim down the energy mix from the excess of carbon-rich emissions of gases such as CO2 and methane that promote global warming. Living on Earth's Ingrid Lobet reports from Los Angeles on the emergence of low-carbon in the lexicon. The other day, California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger announced that refiners are going to have to start selling more alternative fuel in this state. Only he didn't exactly say that. He said oil producers would have to start producing more low-carbon fuel, 10% less carbon by 2020. At the announcement, the phrase was suddenly on all the speaker's lips. Uh, We're going to establish for California low-carbon fuel standards. Why would an electric company be interested in a low-carbon fuel standard? There are many ways that companies can fulfill our low-carbon fuel standards. It's easy to see why the governor would announce such a change. California has now capped the amount of carbon it's allowed to emit. You can expect this new fuel rule to be just one in an ongoing string of carbon clamping measures. But what about the use of that phrase, one that few, if any, people have heard before or can define? It turns out the state is trying to do something new. Ethanol is a compound with two molecules of carbon compared with eight molecules of carbon in gasoline. But some ethanol and other so-called alternative fuels require tons of carbon energy and carbon-based fertilizers and pesticides to grow. Then they're transported in tankers that burn carbon fuel to distilleries or refineries that burn more carbon fuel. California is trying to distinguish among the various ethanols and biodiesels and favor only those biofuels that use less net carbon in their creation and transport. 
At transportation research centers at UC Davis and Berkeley, engineers are working out the details for carbon grading each fuel. They'll take into account, did it come from corn or from a waste product? Was it distilled using coal-fired electricity or using methane captured off dairy cow manure? And it turns out the researchers making these calculations will be trading notes with European colleagues. The European Union just proposed a low-carbon standard for its fuels that is almost identical to California's. Will other states mandate low-carbon fuel? Their first step would probably be to pass a carbon cap in their legislature. Maryland, Florida, and New York may soon consider such moves. For Living on Earth, I'm Ingrid Lobet in Los Angeles. Winter driving, driving you crazy? For a change of pace, try guiding a team of dogs through two feet of snow. Producer Ed Janis traveled to the Bayfield Peninsula of northern Wisconsin to learn the fine art of mushing. He recorded Wolf Song Adventure owners John and Mary Thiel as they showed him and other first-time mushers how to ride on the back of a sled at 12 miles an hour with eight dogs pulling as one. Hey, Java. Starbucks. They love what they do. They just love it. People like to do hands-on stuff. I mean, that's, that's the big thing. What they really want to do is handle the dogs. I mean, that's the best part of it. So we have them do everything. They harness the dogs and hook them up and drive a team. And when we're done, they can uh, come back and feed them. And that's people's favorite part. often name litters by category so you can keep track of who the brothers and sisters are and my family's very Norwegian so this is Lefsa there's a Ludafisk, this is Krumkaka which is a Christmas cookie We have a Blues litter BB King, Buddy Guy, Luther Allison You can see in the dogs now they're starting to get fired up a little bit. You're really working with that enthusiasm, trying to keep them feel happy all the time is ready, we'll lay them out. Hey, JD, you want to go for a little run? Some of these older guys will just about dress themselves, though. Lift their paw for you. There you go. Slip it right over his head. You sort of pull it back. And... I'm going to do a little sled instruction with you. The skis are called runners. You'll stand there most of the time. This sled will track behind the dogs quite well, and you don't have to do a whole lot of steering. You've got a couple different brake systems here, which you will use a good deal of the time out on the trail. Let's go, girls. Let's go, girls. Good dogs. is the best part. All that excitement and noise and chaos hooking up and you pull the hook and it's just instant silence. Good dogs. On by, on by. I don't know if you saw it up there, but Lucy, the, the little one, she was trying to go right, which would have been G. And uh, Luti, the old experienced leader, said, no, no, <laughs> we're not going that way. 
we're going about 10 miles, 12, gee, 12 miles an hour. Ha, ha, ha. Good boy, Luti, good boy. Come on, guys, come on, come on. About this time in the run, the dogs usually get into a bit of a rhythm and you can just sort of just go through the woods like this, look around a little bit, snow hanging up in the trees. You look out over your team and you see them when they really get in a groove, the dogs will move like a wave, you know, like one animal. It's just a beautiful thing to see them running and doing what they love to do and they're happy and excited and you can't help but be the same. I'm gonna run up this hill here. The only way to stay warm in the winter when it's really cold out is to, is to run. Let's take 10 steps, jump back on, rest a little bit. I help them up the hills a bit. Straight ahead, straight ahead. Try to, try to kick your sled forward as we turn here. Just give a couple of good hard kicks. It'll help you around this corner. Ha, good dogs. Hold on here. Whoa. All right, just hop back on, there you go. Well, I think they're fired up. Now they know they're going home, so they're gonna, they might wanna run a little extra fast. Up, up, let's go, let's go. John and Mary Thiel run Wolf Song Adventures in Bayfield, Wisconsin. Our dog sledding lesson and sound portrait was produced by Ed Janis. That was a great ride, kids. On the next Living on Earth, from tribal village girl to professor to environmental and human rights activist to Nobel Peace Prize winner, Wangari Mathai of Kenya has grown like the tall trees that she advocates planting. She says everything from poverty to climate change can be fought with a shovel and a seedling. There are six billion of us. If at least one out of six planted a tree, we would very easily reach our target of a billion tree. We are appealing to all the people throughout the world, wherever you are, whoever you are, if you can plant a tree. Author and activist Wangari Mathai, next time on Living on Earth. We leave you this week with a return to the rainforest of Borneo for some jungle love. In the pre-dawn hours, a young male gibbon, a lesser ape, sings some short, sweet songs to woo his potential <clears throat> prime mate. If he gets lucky, and in this case he sounds like he just might, the female responds with what's known as her great calls. John Matani and Ruth Happel recorded these two apes monkeying around in the forests of Kalimantan, Borneo. is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Eileen Belinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Ian Gray, Ingrid Lobet, Emily Taylor, Peter Thompson, and Jeff Young, with help from Bobby Bascom and Kelly Cronin. 
Our interns are Paige Doty and Megan Vigen. Dennis Foley is our technical director. Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org. I'm Steve Kerwood, executive producer. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Ford Foundation, the Oak Foundation, and the Saunders Hotel Group of Boston's Lenox and Copley Square Hotels, serving you and the environment while helping preserve the past and protect the future. 800-225-7676. PRI Public Radio International.